This episode is brought to you by 3D Equalizer, the world's leading 3D camera tracking solution. Get your free evaluation license today at 3dequalizer.com. Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney, you're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast. Today we're going to speak with ILM visual effects supervisor Ben Snow about Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Ben is no stranger around these parts of the FX podcast. He's joined us to discuss previously Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Terminator Salvation, and Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. So Noah, the film, as you might expect, has a whole lot of digital water sims as well as digital animals. So we'll talk to him about that. We also have additional coverage to this podcast and a written story focusing on the practical rain and water effects. And look for an FX Guide TV also, because Mike made a visit to uh, Mike Seymour made a visit to ILM recently and got more information. So lots of coverage of Noah. So it's hard to believe that it's the end of March already, which for FX Guide means we transition from award season and head on to trade show season. Well, it's getting to the point where there's so many trade shows that uh, it's hard to keep up, and we really have to be selective about where we get the best bang for our buck. And John Montgomery this year and I are going to head to NAB in early April. Um, the last few years we've had just so much going on at uh, NAB that it's been hard to properly see the show. And So we've scaled back a little bit and hope to learn more and have more time to talk with more people. So we're already hearing some exciting things to be announced at NAB, so looking forward to the show. Well, let's get into today's podcast. Here is our Mike Seymour speaking with Ben Snow from ILM about the film Noah. And I'm joined now by uh, Ben. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, congratulations on the film. It seems uh, to use the word epic is as uh, is an understatement, but uh, obviously a biblical kind of epic at that. Um, uh, when did you first get involved with the project? Um, actually, about two and a half years ago. Um, I'd uh, been looking at different projects after finishing Pirates of the Caribbean 4, and um, so this would have been, what, late 2011? And um, we got a call from Darren Aronofsky, um, and he'd actually been to visit ILM a couple of times doing talks. We have a speaker series here, and he'd sort of come here with his films, The Wrestler and Black Swan, done talks, gotten on really well with um, the people he'd met here. And um, so they bought this film forward, and it was a bit of an unusual project. Uh, They sent us a script, and he sent a, an explanatory note with the script, and he sent a book of um, imagery with it too that um, had some pretty inspiring and uh, interesting stuff that really sort of showed this was going to be something a little bit different from what we were used to. So that's the sort of thing that I particularly love and leapt at, and uh, Linwin Brennan, who's the president of the company, was really... Uh, really in favor of it as well. And so uh, that sort of got us started. Uh, he's a very interesting filmmaker, isn't he? I mean, let's, it's just, you know, not, not a formulistic kind of guy. No, no, absolutely not. He is very interesting. And his films have been very interesting. I've certainly liked all of his films. And um, I've always found them interesting. And so, yeah, I think that was uh, that was sort of, I think, one of the attractions of the project, for sure. Now, I think I was bumping into you or, or crossing paths with you around the time you were going on location. Um, where was that? Where were you filming principal photography? 
Well, you know, we did a lot of it on location in Iceland. Um, actually spent a couple of months there. And then um, they actually did a lot of it in and around New York City, actually on Long Island in an actual forest there. Uh, there was a, the, um, an arboretum out on Long Island there. Let them uh, essentially clear a... Um, a um, clear a, a section. Well, there was a clearing in the forest there, and they were allowed to sort of dress that. And we actually built a large, full-size front of the ark exterior set there. So that was uh, we were out there for quite a bit of time. Actually, interestingly, we'll get into later. I'm sure shooting night for day for the battle scene, and then um, in Brooklyn in uh, a couple of armories there. We uh, built actually a full or a large part of an arc interior set. And then I did a bunch of blue screen stunt elements and stuff as well for the battles and thing there. There are a bunch of different uh, components to this. I imagine at the script level, the first one that would have struck you is we're going to need a lot of digital water here. Um, <laughs> so let's start there. The uh, In any telling of an arc you're going to have water it's quite distinctive how the water arrives at the arc and and how that uh culminates how how did the complexity of the water stack up versus some of the more uh well similar water sim stuff that ilm's done yeah well i mean it's interesting because obviously that's one of the you know you think about the animals and the arc and water as the as the things that you think of with uh with noah and I mean, we've done water stuff over the years, and I've been involved in large-scale water destruction dating back to, you know, things like Twister and Deep Impact. So it's um, it's been something that's in our blood. And, of course, this is the deluge. So it's our chance to show the ultimate biblical deluge to end them all sort of thing. And so we had um, revamped our water tools quite a bit recently on um, Pacific Rim. And before that, we'd done a lot of really interesting water stuff on um, Battleship. Some of the efforts to uh, revamp the tools for Pacific Rim were really aimed at getting things a lot more controllable and fast, which was something we definitely wanted to be able to do on NOAA. And um, I felt that some of the Battleship stuff had a really terrific um, sense of some of the qualities of the water simulations and, and that sort of thing, and a variety of the water simulations was perhaps a little bit more along the lines of what we needed. So a lot of the tool set that we ended up with after Pacific Rim was really orientated to their particular needs, which were essentially these large fights amidst a large body of water. We needed a lot more um, tweaks to the water, a lot more controls to the water. And so what we did was sort of work on, on our tool set to give us back some of that sort of controllability, but now being able to utilize some of the increased speed so that we could iterate and do full water simulations. We didn't have to be in a situation which I might have been back on films in the uh, 90s and, and um, the, nor the noughties <laughs> to um, do, you know, you'd have to hand animate a big mesh, for example, of... Um, of a, you know a CG mesh, use that to drive the base of your sim, and then you'd add various things on top. With the speed of the tools that we were able to enjoy on Noah, we were able to sort of run in and simulate the whole thing. So we got a lot of that realism that you get from a physically based simulation, but we were able to iterate quickly enough that we could effectively art direct it too into what we needed to have happen, and that was pretty. 
um, you know, it was pretty specific in terms of we wanted to try and be true to what it says in the Bible. And, you know, in the Bible they have um, water, uh, the waters of the earth explode out of the earth and, and the waters come from the sky, obviously. So one of the aspects was that we would have these large uh, geysers erupt from the ground. And then, um, you know, we've had the rainstorm going and then the idea is the ark is the center of all this, of this sort of thing. So we sort of bring the deluge on to the point where the waters engulf everything by actually bringing the water in around the ark and enveloping it in this sort of circular sort of wall of water that that uh, comes in on top of it. And that water is, of course, interacted with the forest, wiping out the forest on the way, and we see it wiping out the forest. And it's, you know, got a lot of debris and humans and all sorts of things uh, mixed up in it. So there were huge shots um, that Raoul Essig and his team, the water team, really took on but they uh, you know they really did terrific stuff I thought yeah was there any real complexity in the floating per se of the ark because in in let's say um, uh, a script comes across your desk it's got a sort of tsunami thing right you've got a lot of rigid body stuff that's defining the water goes between it there's a destruction stuff gets carried along kind of thing but in here you have this massive structure that floats up Um, even in uh, you know battleship and stuff you were sort of either on the water or things were sort of skipping over it but lifting up and floating i'm wondering did it present any problems you know um the way that we approach that sort of thing is usually try to do some sort of base simulation but then we find that we want to add a bit of animation on top of that to really make it work so you might start with a base simulation where you have some sort of flotation aspect in your buoyancy rules I guess in the uh, on the rigid body that you're floating and then usually you then want to go in and, and do some animation on top to to add the sort of qualities that look pleasing the, the obvious reason that I ask this is it doesn't look like a boat <laughs> and so you're trying to float it with no. a sim does it sim to float <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting about the Ark was that, um, you know, they started with the uh, dimensions that the Bible dictates, and they, um, we talked about it creatively, how we wanted to, how much of it we wanted to sit out of the water, and like everything on the film, a lot of thought went into the whys and wherefores of anything that happens in the movie, um, be it a vision or the watches or um, the way the deluge takes place, and in the case of the Ark after we settled on the design, after a pretty extensive exploration and discussion, um, it, we realized it's not a cruise ship and it's not, you know, um, something that's transporting cargo in the traditional sense. It's a life raft and it just has to be able to survive and float. So there's no rudders or propulsion or anything like that. It just has to be a survival thing. So it ended up being this sort of fairly simple um, rectangular shape. But we said, okay, if we want it to ride in the water, so we decided that the water level should be a little bit below the top deck level where the family might actually come out into the sun occasionally, then um, it would need this sort of ballast. So we consulted with hydrographics people and that sort of thing and worked out, oh, it would need this amount of ballast to actually float properly. And so a lot of that math had been done at the art department level. And in fact, in the set, 
I don't think it's ever really featured in the film, but we actually have the whole bottom section of the arc below. You'll see that it sort of looks a little bit raised when you see, mm. see it in, on the ground. If you look closely, you'll see underneath that, that they, there are these angled sort of wooden things filled with rocks. And that was essentially uh, showing the sort of ballast that we felt we would need to get a proper flotation, given how big it was, the amount of air that would be inside, and the amount of wood that was involved and that sort of thing. So it was all pretty scientifically worked out, which was great when you come to want to simulate it. (laughs) So when you came to the animals... Uh, it isn't just a matter of doing an audit of uh, of animals that are going to appear in the film because this isn't the typical two giraffe, two elephant and a couple of zebra shots. In fact, there are animals going into the ark that by today's standards are not, well, they'd be extinct, I guess, or they'd They don't exist. exist. Well, yeah. yeah, it's funny. In Darren's first sort of uh, little cover letter he sent with the script, he's like, not even the animals will be cliched elephants and giraffes but instead species that don't quite exist on Earth. Everything will be a little different and fantastical. And it was definitely from day dot his desire to not do the children's book version where you have the giraffes sticking out the top of the ark heading off into the sunset. But but what's the backstory on that? Is it that, I mean, is it that these creatures were saved at this point and have become extinct sense or is it just oh, to provide oh, a more generic yeah well actually we put a lot of work into this and it was something that was there from the start although as you're doing the initial planning on the film and you're looking at budgetary reality some of it went away for a little bit and then it came back again but basically he was very um, intent on depicting an earth that was not quite the earth we know so um For example, we have some shots of the Earth from space and we basically looked, we riffed off of, you know, Gondwana land, the sort of, you know, unified continent that existed before tectonic plate theory sort of had its toll or whatever and split up to the different continents we have. So that was the base design that we used, although we covered it with enough cloud and that sort of thing that it wasn't really clear that that was the case. And then we... The um, solar system that were created around the Earth was very um, uh, clean and clear and you could see nebulas like you couldn't before. And then when we were on the Earth, there was a strong emphasis, a strong um, approach to try and keep that going so that, in fact, you have all these celestial skies added to most of the shots leading up to the time when we start building the Ark. So... Um, there was definitely this idea that it wasn't quite Earth. And there's also a sort of sense of a fallen civilization to an extent because we have um, some big map paintings that our colleagues at Look Effects did um, of different sort of blasted landscapes mm. and post-industrial looking things. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting, a very interesting aesthetic that I was like, wow, this is really interesting that they kind of did this. And down to the costumes and Tubal Cain's camp, there are, you know, there's plastic containers that are sort of there. They're really heavily covered up and the different fabrics were included modern fabrics. So there was definitely a um, uh, a differentness to this that was uh, intrinsic to the DNA of the film and that extended to the animals. So the animals, he said he didn't want them to be real and 
sort of we need to design, you know, thousands of different animals. And we were talking about ways we could do this. Could we, you know, he was like, oh, you know, there's this game where you can spore, I think it's called or something, where you can yeah. um, design yeah. animals. Maybe we could make something like that and put it on the web and everyone could design animals. And if we liked their designs, it could go in the film. All this sort of stuff, which is really interesting, cool ideas. But we, you know, came to this point where we're like, okay, uh, if we like the design chore alone for making hundreds of these animals and then trying to make photorealistic versions of them, it's just, I, you know, we, we won't be finished in time for the film to come out. So um, what we agreed upon was that we would avoid these cliched animals, as he put them, um, but we could have real animals. Um, we couldn't have a kangaroo, because you might expect that, but you could have a wombat you know, or a tree kangaroo even, because it was a bit more unusual. Um, we couldn't have a zebra, but you could have a wildebeest. But you allowed you procedural variation on that, right? You allowed procedural um, variation And then on, on top of that, you would. So, well, the way we approached it, because we had to create so many varieties, um, was after talking about it a lot, we decided to create something we called the Zoo Project here at ILM. And the idea was that we, we created a basic animal toolkit that we could then use to build any sort of animal that we might want to. Um, so it was originally designed around real animals, existing animals, because we weren't necessarily sure we would end up going down this path of them being, um, you know, non-real, uh, hyper-real or extinct or whatever. But um, what we did was um, essentially, I guess, start by looking at um, books of extinct animals, collecting images of those, collecting images of, um, you know, more fanciful animals. And we had things like, you know, in the Victorian age, they would... Um, you know, hear about a thing like the platypus and they wouldn't know what that would look like and then they would imagine what it would look like and draw an illustration of it and those sort of illustrations were interesting to us. And then um, on top of that, we went through and just collected tons of um, photographs of animals that we thought were a little, little less than usual, that were unusual. And, um, you know, we did this for the birds and we did this for the um, reptiles and amphibians and we also did it for mammals. So talking about just the mammals, what we did was sit down with Darren and with these big binders full of um, imagery, um, as I said, extinct and um, fanciful, some of it, and perhaps less common animals that you might see today. And he went through and said, I like this, I like, don't like that, I like this, I don't like that. And so we ended up with a whole selection of animals and then... Basically, Jun Sung, our model lead, and Eric Wong, our um, creature dev lead, and Gene Bolte, who was our paint lead, sort of sat down and tried to analyze with, with, with uh, Mark Chu, our animation lead, too, okay, what is in common here? And so we came up with about eight classes of different um, types. Like we had a couple of types of bear, a couple of types of wolf, and you know, one of these might give you everything from a small marsupial thing to a black bear, for example. But what was in common was, let's say, it had, you know, five fingers and claws, or it had um, a similar shaped head, or it had 
a long tail or, you know, when it walked, it put its foot flat on the ground. So there were groups that were more um, visual and um, motion-related rather than actual scientific classes. But we kind of came up with those with the idea that we'd make a skeleton common to each of these, you know, groups of animals and be able to take animation and apply it to that skeleton across this range of animals. And similarly, textures could be shared because the topologies would be very similar. And so then we were able to create a bunch of um, uh, patterns and, and different maps because in looking at mammals, you know, I'd, at one stage early in the show, I'd gone to the Museum um, of Natural History in New York and um, they had this hall called the Hall of Biodiversity, which is a scary place if you're uh, doing a Noah movie to walk <laughs> into. But, you know, obviously, you know, fish and reptiles and birds, there's a lot of diversity there. But if you then walk, walk into the Hall of African mammals and, and North American mammals and stuff that they have there, you sort of see there's a lot of sort of, you know, you end up with a palette of browns and tans and blacks and um, whites and you know it's all very much this sort of restricted palette and a lot of the individuality and distinctiveness comes through textures so and patterns so that kind of you know gave us a, a good palette to work from so we ended up making some um, extinct animals um, but using you know sometimes you'll see illustrations of extinct animals and they'll they'll be like you know they, they haven't really been designed with an eye on actual physiological possibility, if that makes sense. Um, but really good illustrations of um, extinct animals do factor in, oh, this is what real animals can, this is how they can function and work. So, so yeah, from that we basically made, you know, for each of these different classes, we made several variants that were all pretty wildly different to one another. And then we made a library of horns and, and things, again, trying to avoid anything too distinctive like moose horns or whatever, um, and um, a set of different patterns and fur designs and that sort of thing. And so we're able to, from that, end up with, you know, uh, a whole screen full of mammals two by two, but, but each one being But Ben, different. if you'd stopped there, that would have been impressive enough, but uh, <laughs> as is made a point in the film... Um, there were reptiles, and that shot of uh, snakes and stuff heading towards the ark is just phenomenally complicated. Yes. Yeah, the the reptiles were a big challenge because Darren had this idea of waves of animals coming to the ark, um, the birds, the reptiles, and then the mammals. And so the reptiles to get that sense of waves, you really wanted this idea of them crawling all over one another, the snakes crawling all over one another, and then um, the lizards sort of wading through on top of this and, and this sort of thing. So there was a lot of, um, all of the um, different layers had to sort of take account of one another. And so again, with the snakes, or with the reptiles, we kind of did what we'd done with the mammals and we made, I think it was two or three base lizard variants, but then the, you know, you might, from one variant, you could have a frilled neck lizard and a horn toed lizard, you know, sort of thing. So, you know, we were able to add little add-ons and things to make many more varieties. And with the snakes, um, a similar sort of thing, although it was much more pattern-based with, with the snakes.
snakes. We had different head shapes and that sort of thing that we could put on the lizards. But it was, again, trying to, by dividing the uh, animal up into body, head, feet, try and make a library that you could then assemble into a variety of different looks. In the case of the lizards and um, the birds, um, we actually pretty much kept to, um, to real things because right. there was enough examples of interesting, colourful, unique, real, um, real uh, things that we thought, you know, they, they, that, we, that would work well. And then we'd just have to deal with the whole problem of <laughs> making such an exact ground plane they could crawl over our set with the camera six inches off the ground and then have piles of them one on top of the other. And then Darren's like, oh, gosh, we really need amphibians as well, so can you guys add frogs? And we're like, oh, okay, fine, we'll add some frogs. Luckily, we'd, he'd selected some, so <laughs> we could <laughs> add those. And then, then he's like, oh, and I need the insects. We can't remember the, we can't leave the insects behind. So, um, so great, let's do swarms of insects as well. So, <laughs> so the character animation department uh, has got to produce not just walk cycles for these things, but they've got to interact, especially those reptiles, uh, going over each other. I mean, they, they aren't actually in a, th- a thousand shots either. Like it's, I mean, the, that big reptile... No, no, actually, that's the thing. The animals weren't as, as big a... They were... It wasn't a big... You know, it's like, well, we obviously have to do the animals, right? Um but it wasn't the thrust of the film, I suppose. Mm. So um, it definitely was something that we had to deal with. And, you know, to Darren Aronofsky, an epic shot has to be, you know, 20 seconds long at least, probably longer. And so they were big, huge, enormous, challenging shots. I mean, the big pullback through the arc, which there's a little tiny section of in the trailer, Mm. is, you know, it was the biggest shot that we've had to render here in terms of processor time and stuff. It was it just keeps on I mean, going. Every other show. show, every other show hated us because of the disk space that we were using. And the way the, the animals caches. kind of settled in those shots as well was really nice. Like you know, as they kind of found their place on that pullback shot. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's the, definitely the um, thinking that went ahead, went into them ahead of time to come up with how do we best maximise these cycles. So that we could start with a base layer of Massive. We were using Massive for the first time at ILM on this show, or the first time extensively. And, of course, the first thing we throw at Massive ends up being, oh, wait, yeah, you have to have only one pair of animals in each shot will be the same as one another. So you have to deal with all these huge variety of different um, animal designs and sizes and scales. So we had all this trouble with things like proximity where oh you've got you know a pair of you know sugar gliders next to an elephant or something it's, it becomes a it becomes a little bit of a challenge to not have them interpenetrating and that sort of stuff and then also to have the pairs intelligently following one another so that because you want to see oh they're two by two yeah. so you don't want them to go wandering off into the hinterland or leaving their mate behind so they had to sort of keep close to one another not run into much bigger and much smaller animals. And so that was a a big challenge. But the animators did a great job of doing these cycles. And then once we had the base sims down for a performance like walking in and then settling down to sleep, we'd go in and, you know, the the animals that were front and centre do another layer of animation on top. So we'd sort of got the 
the the massive system integrated well enough with our rest of our pipeline that we could go back and forth between the two and um, and uh, swap out things for hand animation where appropriate. Let's talk about the uh, the sequences where the forest, for want of a better term, grows um, from the ground. So uh, you're doing a, a sequence that you know is less uh, classic, I guess, in the Noah telling this idea yeah. of the the forming up of um, of vegetation, and and that again must have been a hell of a dispace issue because while there's a lot of instancing you can do, obviously on leaves on trees and stuff, you're actually forming everything from grass. Well, from dirt to grass to forest, effectively. Yeah, no, it's um, it is funny. I mean, you're absolutely right that it isn't necessarily in the, it mentioned in the Bible, but the Noah story is like six chapters in Genesis. It's actually really short, only a few pages. Um, there's no dialogue in it, for example. And <laughs> I think the film does a good job of trying to explain stuff that you think about when you're like, oh, well, what? How could that happen? Or how could this happen? Or whatever. So, um, and it also, I think, adds a quotient of Old Testament-style miracles, which was actually a lot of fun to work on for us creatively. And, of course, the growth of the forest was, was one of the big ones. We were luckily in it, you know, involved on the show early on, and even though the bulk of the previous work um, initially was done by a company called Blind Squirrel, we um, did the previews on things like the Deluge stuff and... Um, and, you know, obviously I was working closely with Blind Squirrel because I was the overall supervisor on the show to, on things like the forest growth. So we talked about it. It was in the script. And when we were scouting in Iceland, one of our, we did several scouts to Iceland, we found this mountain that um, we decided would be Methuselah's mountain. And it was like perfect for the story. And it's like this green jewel of a mountain that just rises up seemingly straight out of this black um, gravel lava plain. And, of course, the reality is that there was a uh, volcanic eruption there in Iceland uh, just a few years ago, within the last decade, and that's sort of where all the lava flow went past. So it's just left this black layer of um, stuff everywhere. So it was perfect for, uh, you know, this idea that Noah was sort of journeying out of a fairly blasted, barren landscape and he comes to Methuselah's Mountain, which is this large green thing rising out of it. So Methuselah gives him a seed and he plants it. And the idea was that, um, you know, the next morning um, water springs out of this seed and the water sort of radiates out and we did a little bit of practical effects work to get the uh, water effects started. We actually buried some hoses out there in, on this Icelandic um uh, gravel, lava gravel <laughs> field and um, the water actually erupts and you know we shot some references I had them dig little channels for us to start the water but then we added CG water obviously for most of the growth of the rivulets, they have to go uphill at certain points and that sort of thing and then um, the ground starts rumbling and a forest erupts from it and originally in the script I'd done the early breakdowns of the script and I'd sort of done it shot by shot based on the description pretty much and I had quite a few shots there of the trees and things happening in the trees. And as we, you know, so as we had the early meetings with Darren and he went through the breakdown and he's like, well, I think you've got too many shots here, too few here, too many there. Um, and then as we sort of started trying to make the 
work in the film fit the box that we had available. Um, it became this idea that he really wanted to get rid of some of these smaller shots and have this one big shot where the camera would spiral out from the forest. So we tried a couple of things in previews. We actually were in a helicopter on this scout, and we, sh as as we were on the helicopter, we shot some footage on a video camera, and decided, you know, maybe we'd try something a bit more linear. That might work better. Blah blah blah. But when it came down to it, he really wanted to have this spiral shot. Which, so, you know, we'd from the very start known because it was in the script, and I'd broken it down that we would have to deal with the growing forest and we'd been using speed tree with some success for um, vegetation work here so we actually got in touch with the guys at speed tree and said look you know we have to um, you know be able to tweak the tools so that we can do this plant growth that we need to do so we need to grow a tree from from you know nothing basically and we didn't want it to um, just m magically sort of come up and unfold like a magician's growing tree or whatever we wanted it to sort of start small like a sapling mm. and then expand and have the twigs come out and then the leaves expand at the end so creatively that was kind of what we wanted so we actually worked with them and uh, Jerome Plateau our um, uh, digital mat expert on the tree growth stuff worked and did a bunch of tests and we ended up with a bunch of um, tree growth animation cycles that we showed Darren and that he liked and it's funny because I thought they were a little bit too there was a little bit of revolution in them they were going round and round a bit much but he actually liked that he felt it added dynamics but then once we had that he was able to then Jerome was able to layer in a choreography of these things then growing out of the earth that we could pin to the camera and um, you know so the animation of the trees actually went relatively smoothly. It was a nightmare to render, and it used a ton of <laughs> disk space, for sure. And, you know, on top of that, of course, the plate that we'd shot, we didn't have a really good gyro-stabilized rig when Darren shot the plate, but we were originally going to go back and shoot it later, but I was like, man, I want to get every plate we possibly can while we're here in Iceland because I'm, you know... Who knows if we'll be allowed to come back and shoot this other stuff. So Darren went up and shot, you know, God, 20 or 30 takes, um, trying different approaches with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connolly and the family sort of down there performing. And then we basically, it was a tricky match move, but we kind of got it matched and then stabilized it. And then they wanted to extend the move to favor the mountain more. So we ended up reprojecting the mountain extending the black plane that they were on because it sort of went back to normal sort of um, not right. pasture but sort of arctic sort of landscape yep. and then add this whole celestial sky around so it was kind of you know even before the trees it, there was a, a, a fair degree of complexity but worked out pretty well and then that was our marriage through to um, uh, Long Island, the um, forest in Long Island where we filmed the Ark Exterior stuff. We reset up the family camp there and we put black gravel down to match what was in Iceland and, of course, extended that in CG. But we added the same sort of tree growth in the shot following, so we're looking up more from the family's point of view and to see the trees finishing growing. And it kind of provides a nice tie-in. And you know, from the film's point of view, it actually represents sort of an end of this pre-Age of Earth 
with all these um, celestial skies and stuff, and it's sort of a thematic turning point to where we sort of start on the building of the Ark. I think we should clarify for people that haven't seen the behind-the-scenes stuff that the Ark set that you're talking about isn't, like, it's big, but it isn't the whole thing. It's more like kind of the side front, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's one it of the sides. Oh, it's part of one of the sides in the front, and yeah. then it has this really remarkable uh, artistic um, scaffolding that was built by these um, bamboo artists. Um, but yes, and in fact, on the big reveal shot, which I think they show a little bit of in, in one of the trailers, you do this big fly around that's like, you know, it's sort of like the uh, Noah's Ark equivalent of an enterprise hardware <laughs> worship shot where you fly around it and you get to look inside a little bit because it's still under construction and it's, you know, they're still working on it and um, hammering in nails and carrying logs and all this sort of stuff. So so it was kind of a fun shot to do, a sort of um, biblical version of that sort of shot that we've done a couple of times with... Uh, the Enterprise or some other grand sort of spaceship. Let's talk about the Watchers. Um, they have uh, kind of fallen to Earth and not necessarily survived the bump unscathed. They have a very no. distinctive gait. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, a little bit. They, the Watchers are an interesting character and they were definitely one of our biggest creative challenges on the film because um, they... Darren was really looking and exploring for ideas. And when he first came to ILM, one of the things that we did to, you know, sort of pitch um, doing the film with us was he came over and did a really interesting virtual cinema session where we took one of the scenes from the script, which involved the watchers, had a few of our performers um, down on the stage in mocap suits and a little virtual camera in a little arc exterior environment that we just made up pretty quickly in Photoshop and with a really rough uh, arc model. Of course, our arc at that time was much more traditional looking. And the watchers were sort of these large humanoid creatures, the way we kind of imagined it. Um, And we did a little session with Darren, you know, spent a day shooting it, and he had came out of it with a nice little previs that he could then use as part of the pitch to the studio, which was great. So... We'd sort of started doing exploration of the watch design along those lines, and at the same time, there are um, a whole series of different art directors in um, LA, some of the best people in the business, were starting to contribute designs, working directly with Darren. And so there was quite a big design exploration on on these things. And Darren and I had sat down and looked through um, different movies at different creatures, and he would sit there and he'd look at this creature and he's like, wow, I think that creature looks fantastic and I think it's really believable and well realized. But to me, that creature has, we've seen it before. It's been in, you know, a couple of movies before and I'm really looking for something that is completely different to that for this film. And in the end, the design that we sort of pinned down was actually... um, a sculptor working out of Brooklyn that was, um, you know, uh, a colleague of the art director on the films. They were just mucking around in the art director's backyard with some wax and sticks and, you know, stones and stuff and came up with this crazy design. And Darren sent me a picture of it. I'm like, you're kidding. You know, okay, you can't be serious. Um, and, uh, you know, we got on the phone and he sort of talked through, okay, this is my thinking on it. And I was like, well, actually, this is pr- kind of cool. And, and our director's got 
excited about it too. And um, Mark, to our animation director, was looking at it. I was like, oh, this could be really interesting to try and get this thing to move. So, you know, we basically started from this very odd looking, almost like a paper mache sculpture, and then had to do what we are experts at, which is trying to find it, trying to make this weird, crazy ass design actually into a functional thing that you could believe on the screen. And part of the stuff was a lot of, there's a lot of backstory and thought that went into all of these things. I think I mentioned already. And the watchers had a whole backstory and this sort of thing. And Darren felt it was sort of key to understanding them to work out that backstory and show it in, in the screen. So, we also did a bunch of exploration because they are divine beings who essentially decide to come to Earth to try and help mankind. And so when they're in their divine form, they sort of, Darren pictured them or described them as something that was really energy and light, made of energy and light. And there were all sorts of abstract things we did, like ending things that ended up looking like, you know, Bit from the original Tron back in the... You know the eighties right. sort of you know or the or the starship that that Superman goes to earth in, in the seventies Superman it looked sort of that sort of like that, and there were all sorts of things and in the end, um one of our artists here at ILM, Carl Lindbergh, came up with a design sort of riffing off of some of the stuff that Darren had liked from these massive explorations they'd done that had a little bit of a hint of uh, traditional quality, but it was very much an uh, energy light looking thing. But there were some echoes of the silhouette that you may think of as angelic. And then um, the idea was that they went down to Earth and they impacted Earth and the heat and everything else that resulted sort of liquefied the rock around them. It didn't really superheat it, but it sort of became like tar-like. They ended up crashing in these sort of um, mossy fields that were based on real locations we shot in Iceland on. And... So there's this key shot where um, we see the impact of of the uh, of this like comet-like thing that is the um, the Divine Watcher, and we have a big explosion of ground which we actually shot up at 3210 Studios as a miniature effect, and then um, you see this glowing creature that we'd just been introduced to in space actually forming um, and pushing up all this tar, and you can see it through this sort of covering of, of molten tar type stuff, and it pushes its way out. And, you know, that was oddly enough done using um, the same fluid simulator that we used for uh, our big water effects. Hmm. One of the things I mentioned was that we sort of were building upon the fluid simulator for um, that they'd used on, uh, they tweaked for Pacific rim, but it had been really specific to what they needed to do, which was these large uh, large open oceans with things waiting around in them. And so here we had a sort of a bowl of viscous fluid, and frankly, the viscosity tools in our, in our fluid sim weren't that great, and we had to go back in and, and, and revamp those, and then really break apart the simulation engine so that we could have control. And so instead of having to take like a bowl-like slice out of a whole ocean, which was kind of where we started with this, we could actually simulate a little cup and bowl of fluid and then have this thing pull out the fluid so it sort of clung to him in viscous form. And so it drags all this tar with it and that hardens. And then after it's hardened, 
you have a moment where the creature sort of shatters this and pulls free of it, it all falls off him. And what you're left with is essentially something that started out as a six-winged sort of divine creature, and it's now encased in rock, and it's kind of, you know, almost become severely disabled, I suppose, um, or crippled. And so that was sort of how they were going to move. Which and is that a was really a interesting expl- brief to the character animators, isn't it? Because, you know, this kind of idea of a um, a large but not necessarily uh, easily moving creature is a tr- particularly interesting, challenging, and I imagine rewarding thing for a character animator to work, work on. It is, but it did go through a hell of a design phase. Like, we started with animation and animation studies, and Darren actually got some of the dancers that he'd worked with on Black Swan to come into the mocap stage and do a bit of work, both before we designed it and then after we designed it, just to explore the motions. Although what was interesting about that was a lot of the things we sort of found while we were doing that was that a lot of what we'd been doing in the animation was actually really good and, and... the, the direction really didn't change a lot as a result of that, although it actually helped us work out a couple of problems that we had, including that birth shot that I was talking about. Right. So it was a huge challenge, and I have to sort of credit Mark Chu and his team, and particularly Sean Kelly, one of the leads on this, for their patience with exploring this. Not just on, you know, with creature things, we did a lot of different variations for Darren, trying different ideas out. But then we also tried to build physical components into the sim- into this through simulation so that maybe we'd have Sean do a version that wasn't quite as stuttery. In fact, it was funny because at one point, Darren's like, I really want them to be stuttery and almost palsied in their movements. And we said, well, it's going to start looking like Ray Harryhausen, you know, if it's got that sort of stop motion quality. And he's like, that's not a bad thing. That's great. (laughs) So it was all for that. So we built stutter into their motion. And, um, but then we're like, oh, gee, it really does end up looking stop motion-y. So let's, um, let's explore smoothing that out. So Sean went back and smoothed it out and then adding, um, simulation on top. So, um, Eric Wong's creature team sort of came up with these simulations where you had the rocks all on springs attached to the body. And so as it would move, there would be lag, and then the rocks would collide with one another and actually clunk into place. And that was really interesting, but it actually ended up making them look sort of a little more rubbery. So ultimately, the I think the, the, the final walk that you see in the film really comes down to really good animation. There's a little layer of simulation on top, but honestly, the biggest, most obvious things are some stuff that the animators did using our TFM system where you can take your base animation and then override it so that you can specifically move individual pieces together, something they'd come up with for the Transformers films. So that was kind of how they then added little impacts and stuff where the rocks collided. So it was. I think think in the end, now with distance, they'd all be like, oh, wow, that's, you know, really good. And obviously we had a lot of fun with things like the battle scenes where they're interacting with the crowds and people are climbing on them and they're throwing people around and stabbing them. Well, that's what, I was, that's what I was going to come to, this, this tiny little scene you have where 
there's a few hundred thousand people attacking a few uh, people. There's a little bit of rain. I'm sure it was all shot in the same consistent lighting on a vast set with no problems whatsoever. Um, and a little bit of uh, fluid sim tossed in with a little bit of uh, character animation. Um, so, okay, so it wouldn't be ILM if you didn't like want to tackle a pretty hard shot. But this one must have at least given you a moment for breath because uh, there's a lot going on in the sequence. Yeah, no, it definitely did. But, you know, going into it, I mean, it's funny because when you break something like this down, and, you know, one of the initial versions, we had the water starting to slowly get deeper and deeper. So they were wading around in knee-high water for a while there, which visually would have been fantastic. <laughs> but I'm glad that that was not where we ended up. Because um, cause the actors... So you sort of, when you're faced with that and you've sort of reconciled yourself to that, you're like, oh, okay, well, I can deal with that other stuff. But yeah, it was a very, it was a huge challenge. Because I hinted Starting at it a with... moment ago that this, because I know from speaking to other members of your team, this yeah. wasn't the most consistent lighting setup um, that you had to, to work with in the sense that you were, well, do you, do you want to explain what was filmed on set and how that had to look on film? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... Basically, what we decided um, was we were going to have a bunch of extras, and really, I've always been pushing for doing as much for real as possible. And, you know, there were arguments over, do we really need to build the, an arc set? Do we really need to have a forest around it? Couldn't we just, you know, do it all in um, with Digimat? And I think that in the end, Darren really decided, and frankly, with the backing of the studio and the urge of his team, including myself, that yeah, let's do as much for this as real and try and make this... We're aiming for a realistic, grittier sort of take on the biblical epic here. Let's try and do as much for real as we can. So we started talking about filming the battle scene, which is supposed to take place in a rainstorm. And, you know, I'd done Twister many years ago where we'd been, unfortunately, blessed with really sunny weather when we were trying to shoot a film about storms <laughs> and had to do a lot of roto work and that sort of thing to make the stuff look overcast. And I really said, that is not a tenable way of doing this. And so we started looking about how do we shadow a battlefield that's big enough to have hundreds of people running across it? Could we fly these big silks? And what are the issues with that? And in the end, Matty Libertique said, the DP, you know, was saying, look, what if we talk, thought about it as a night for day shoot? So, you know, after thinking about it, we're like, well, actually, it's going to be consistent that way. We'll still be outdoors. Um... We can shoot some wide shots at dusk or dawn so we don't have hard sun. And then we have a lot more control over things. So we kind of made the decision to go that way and then, of course, had the problem that everything leading up to the battle is shot day for day in the forest and in the camp approaching the forest, Tubal Cain's camp. And then we have to transition into this uh, night-for-day scenario and make that work and make sell that as being day by, you know, making sure that it's bright enough and making sure that we try and hide the specular highlights that we're going to get on the people from these large lights. Although obviously, you know, that's, you know, you, you're not going to get everything, but um, in fact, some of it actually helps because it makes them look wet, right? What, and what, what were you shooting have... on? What, were you, what was the capture medium? F film. Right. So it's uh, film anamorphic or film, uh, you know... Uh, spherical. Spherical, right. Okay. Yeah, spherical. So it's sort of like a Super 35. So you've got a, what, f you don't have an incredibly high stock uh, ISO, do you? I mean, what were you... 
I don't quite... know what stock. I can't remember what stock we were using in the end. I can find out for you. Because I mean, from my point of view, the big risk of doing this is that you know, night for day is a grain problem. You're just gonna. Oh yeah. Well, you know, yeah, maybe. But I have to say, we did a lot of tests up front, even before we decided to do the um, night for day. So what we did was actually. Um, build a tiny little arc piece set, and we took it out to this. Um, God, it was like the parking lot of a um, of a like a biotech firm in Brooklyn, and set it up there. And we shot it in daylight, and then when we were testing our rain bars as well, because we put a lot of work into designing the special effects rain for the film as well. And then we waited till night, and then we shot some more footage um, illuminated by these large balloon. Um, devices and that was kind of what really clinched it so we sort of studied that to the nth degree before we made the decision and then when we started in on post as soon as we had an assemblage of the sequence Maddie Libertique and I and John Alexander and Jason Porter um, who was the complete on that part of the sequence went down to Technicolor and we kind of did a timing session with our colorist on the film and essentially made sure that we could smooth that transition enough. So that was kind of the grade that we got from Technicolor going in. But we always, at least on my shows, I always try to um, really stay on top of colour from the very start. And so one of the big demands I made, which I'm sure was torture for the compositing uh, leadership, was that we grade this across the, the breadth of the sequence initially. So we did that, but then you've got to factor in rain and rain consistency as well, and this was very important to Darren. So he actually said, okay, I want you to take a pass through the rain and make sure the rain's consistent. So obviously we had to get the shots mostly done, but you know, to try and even that out towards the end, um, after we had most things in place, basically I went through the entire sequence and gave notes on where I thought we needed more rain and less rain and whatever, and where we could, we made those modifications at the shot level because obviously we were tweaking the rain very heavily shot to shot using CG rain and real elements that we shot up at 3210 and elements had shot on the set. And we um, made those changes. But then we also said, look, honestly, some of this is not really going to be dialed in until we get to the DI stage. Hmm. And so we'll have to give elements to Technicolor to use in the grade. So I was over there with them discussing this and we did some tests and stuff and we'd already seen how well a colorist could use um, mats to, um, you know, obviously do the magic that they do in DI these days. And I said, well, if we could give you a mat of the rain, maybe we could do this actually in the DI session. So that's the way we ended up doing it. We basically, I went through and selected rain elements that would be appropriate for every one of the shots so that then Technicolor could make mats for those and add them as, a, as an extra channel into the DPX files used in DI. And then in the DI session, the uh, uh, colorist was able to go in and just use that mat to dial in more rain. It was, it, it was a really elegant solution in the end. So we still put in a lot of work on our side to um, getting it as even as we could beforehand, but this meant that... It, there could be like a last pass through, which I think was really valuable. So that was that aspect of it. <laughs> but, um, those those yeah, rain the, bars that you're talking about, the, yeah. you know, to get really good, which I think is incredibly important. Um, 
Is it uh, Bert Dalton that does the uh, special... Bert Dalton is the Dalton. guy to talk to about that. Yeah, and yeah. He, he was your special effects supervisor, right? That's right. So and you'd he, have worked um, pretty closely with him on this. Very much so during the planning stages and all that sort of thing and, and the tests and what can we do versus what can I do. It was a really... He's a really good special effects supervisor and it was a really good collaborative relationship. Like when it came to the deluge, for example... Um, you know, he had these giant water cannons and I was, uh, you know, again, trying to push for us to shoot as much as possible. And um, so we had these shots where uh, the uh, soldiers emerged from the woods chased by water, basically. And so Bert was able to fire these water cannons. But at a certain point, they were like, oh, you, you know, production was like, you, you guys don't really need to shoot this. And we really sort of put a lot of work into as a team, convincing them, yes, we do want to shoot this, we should shoot this, and we also want to carry, hoist these giant dump tanks up to the top of the arc that we can dump water down the front of the arc and wash stuntmen down the front. And and Bert and, is really experienced with working with senior visual effects people because, I mean, I think he won the Oscar on Curious Case of Benjamin Button, but, like, obviously Star Trek and, and Into Darkness and stuff, like, he's... Exactly. He's yeah. very but comfortable. He's, he's really... He's comfortable with us and... He definitely views it as a partnership, and um, it's not like uh, there's no turf wars or anything yeah. like that at all. And there's also no, you know, he's really good about saying, you know, not shirking doing stuff either, not saying, oh, that's your problem or whatever. So, you know, we sh we were able to get these dump tanks up and shoot these water cannons, and every bit of that footage is, has been used, and it's... Um, it really paid off. I think it really added a good value and it really gave us a strong foundation because, you know, the water cannons fired out through the leaves, but of course they don't quite reach the guys and don't quite knock them off their feet. And so we, and we then can't go underwater with them the mm. way Darren wanted the shot to do and travel along as you see all these underwater guys being brushed along. So, you know, but it gives you such a strong foundation and it gives you something to anchor things to that it's really valuable and uh, I think it pays off for a more realistic film. Yeah. Was that sequence, was this sequence that we're putting talking about the hardest you know, part of the film? Because it feels like it, given the, all of the varying kind of elements that needed to come together and this whole... It was, it was probably the hardest part of the film. I mean, you did have um, Massive Crowds, which, again, this was our first show, heavily using Massive. A lot of digital double work. Um, we did try and shoot as much as possible, and we did shoot a bunch of stunts, but there was huge compositing complexities. And going into it, you know, I said, okay the way we tend to do with adding creatures we'll use roto and this sort of thing so we decided to go heavily rotoscope based for this as well um so uh it put a real stretch on um amy shepherd and her rotoscope team but i have to say that they really embraced it and did a fantastic job and it's frightening. Shots, it's kind of frightening how good those roto teams are now, isn't it? I mean, it? It is frightening. And what's funny about it is, you know, you go into it knowing there'll be nightmare shots, and so you, you know, apologise to them mentally, even as even before you film them sometimes. But then on the day, Darren suddenly comes up and says, "Oh, I want to do this crane back shot, pulling across, you know, hundreds of extras, and I want you to." extend the crowd on the other side of these people off into the distance and it's raining but the rain bars even though we had five rain bars 
aren't actually positioned properly and it'll take us two hours to move the rain bar to this position. So they're going to start not fully in rain. And then the background, there's going to be these blue tents because we can't clear all that out. <laughs> and anyway, you guys are going to have to deal with that because you have to put crowd back behind it. And you're sitting there saying, no, please don't let this be your shot. Please don't let this be your shot. And of course, it always, it always makes the cut that sort of shot you always get it and you know showed it to amy yeah okay this is going to take some time but hell we'll do it and and sure enough in the film it, it looks fantastic so they dealt with lots of problems like that because wherever possible it, i tried to use real foreground people and that sort of thing and you know they got really good at rotoing and the compositors were really great at matching the rain um between the foreground elements and and the background and well, was general, there, a, was there knew, a stereo conversion of this? Actually, that didn't happen until right. really late in the game. Um, but there was a stereo conversion that the studio decided upon. I don't believe it's getting U.S. domestic release, but but you um, didn't I'm have to sure. provide a lot of additional well, material for that. Actually, that was funny because um, the way that people are doing stereo conversions has been changing recently. But we were asked to provide a fair few and in fact we did do like at least um, well over 100 shots um, key shots for stereo and one of the big things of course they asked for was during the battle could you break out your foreground rain layers Um, and we weren't sure that we'd be able to do that many um, although the fact that I'd chosen rain elements for this DI process we thought might help a little bit but, um, in fact, we were able to then power through quite a few of those as well to help with the stereo. Because I think if you're doing so, a lot of roto, that, that, of course, is you know work that you wouldn't want to redo uh, if you ab- were... The, absolutely, the exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you try and help it out because, you know, you want it to be the best you can. And it's kind of, it's, it's sort of a, a weird situation on the film because we kind of went into it saying, oh, that'll never happen and Darren was dead against it and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know... It's, uh, you know, it's, I think once you see that it looks like it's going to have some pretty good spectacle, (laughs) you start thinking along those lines, I guess. So that's what happened. But yeah, so those were, you know, we had the water, we had obviously the water had to interact with the watchers in the battle. So we had shaders for the water running over. Um, Raul came up with techniques for the water dripping off. Like one of the things that I said was, you know, when I am faced with a challenge like this, it's a little bit like the Pearl Harbor battle sequence. You sort of sit there and say, okay, we have to break this down into its problems. We have to make it so that, for example, a lighting TD can run the drip passes and the splash passes, and we don't have to give it to a specialist effects TD. So up front, we did a fair bit of work to say, okay, how do we make easily packaged transportable water drips passes? And we're all actually... Um, developed this thing where the water actually would be simulated running over the actual surface of the watches and it would accumulate physically in the correct place and that would then give rise to the actual drip sim that we used to render. Mm -hmm. So he tried to simplify and package this and I'll say that maybe we didn't end up with as many you know, TDs running that stuff as we'd hoped. You still ended up with specialists running it but it did mean that the tools were there and they were solid so it so we were able to get it done in the time frame. And the other weird thing that happened, well, not weird thing, was that after Darren started realizing what we were doing and was really pleased with the quality of the digital doubles and how close we were able to play them, like many a filmmaker who 
we unfortunately show our hand to and they say, oh, my God, these guys can do anything, they start saying, oh, well, actually, you know what? I never cared for these four or five shots. Why don't we get rid of those and you guys, you know, come up with a big shot that really showcases the watcher, you know, going to town on the crowd or whatever. I describe and those as the, if you can do that, can you do this <laughs> phenomenon? Exactly. So we definitely had a bunch of those shots that came in where they sort of said, oh, well, we'll we won't use this film material. Instead, we'll do this large um, synthetic shot. So Yusei Usegi, our, uh, one of our Digimat artists, recreated the entire battlefield um, as a digital mat asset, including splashing water and everything else. And... Then we used our massive crowd sims in conjunction with hand-animated characters and the watchers and then a layer of ragdoll sims on top of that and then all the cloth sims on top of that and then the rain and the splashes and the drips coming off the watchers and the splatters as the guys hit the ground and so on and then, you know, composite layered all that together um, uh, and created these epic battle shots so yeah they i think if we thought about them ahead of the yeah ahead of post-production we would have been what you know but um once the tools are in place you do find yourself being more easily convinced that something's possible yeah well i mean it does seem that the film has hit almost all the major departments. Um, the one I haven't touched on, and I've written down notes while we were talking, but I, I kept on underlining it because it kept on coming up again and again. We haven't really discussed the atmospherics, the, the, the clouds, the kind of the nature stuff. I mean, the environments we've mentioned, but they are, to my mind, integral with those environments in a land mass sense are the skies and what's going on with the clouds and the and the uh, atmospherics and stuff. And, and I think the effects department, I mean, I always sort of, tend to loop around on them i feel those guys get a bit of a short shift because it's not it's not necessarily the most obvious thing you look at in the frame but it's the thing that can often add an enormous amount of production value and, and it certainly seemed to no I, th I think they did a terrific job i've been the happiest with um some of the effects work that we've done on this film of any of the films and i've been doing effects work since i started at yeah. ilm so it i you know raul essek led that team and rick hankins was a key contributor on it and in terms of a lot of the tool set that we used and you know, we definitely were able to sort of stand on good shoulders in terms of what we were getting from um, Battleship and um, Pacific Rim, but I think they really were able to make a much more flexible tool set that we'll be able to, um, uh, we've already been able to build off of uh, for a wider variety of work going forward because they had to tackle everything, you know, and we had actually done a lot of cloud photography and shooting um, stills and we actually had a, a storm chaser team that we had out in Iceland. I sort of drew up a whole list of we need these sort of water plates, which we did for some of the shots, and we need these sort of skies, and we actually did a bunch of time-lapse stuff in Iceland, including some cloud formation stuff. But then we were able to build upon that, mostly using our proprietary Xeno-based tools, um, things like fire for um, when Methuselah creates a wall of fire, to stop an oncoming army, and um, there's a shot where Noah's in Tubalcane's camp, and it turns into one of his visions of hell. And so we used a lot of big plume fire plume uh, plumes, our proprietary mm -hmm. um, uh, fire engine, um, sort of hardware-based fire engine, that and fire and smoke 
that really came into play there. Um, it's a couple of shots that Florent Andorra did where he really, his approach to that sort of stuff I think is really good one that I think we can all learn from where he really does break it down into components and layers. And I think oftentimes with effective fluid sims and things like the geysers, for example, you want to go into something and you want to make sure you're not just doing one simulation. You want to have, you know, two or three at least different layers of simulation. So what Florent did with these um, fire shots was, um, you know, he would break that up a lot and work with the compositors to sort of decide, yeah, let's just layer this and then I can do this really. And you sort of simplify the problem for yourself a little bit and you, I think, create a, a really effective hole and it's quite efficient as a way to work. So... You know, we had that. We had, obviously, the rain and drips I talked about. Obviously, we had a lot of rigid body stuff. And, you know, for some of the big scenes where the geysers erupt and we had some ground collapse stuff, um, you had um, the geysers then were done by the effects TD, um, Jeff Greeby, and that was handed off to Karen Cooper, the creature rigid sim person who basically ran all this, uh, you know, did a volumetric breakup of the ground and had the ground collapse. And then that went across to the creature team that were doing the massive sims and they simulated the crowd on the ground, falling with the ground and reacting to the ground collapsing. So it was kind of a big marriage of these different departments to, to realise some of this stuff. And it was just, um, you know... It's great having such an experienced crew that are really I just, I just think communicative. That it, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that collaboration is great and just how much production value that brings to some of the shots and and how realistic uh, it is. It, I mean, it can really sell something that is, let's face it, uh, you know, on, on not particularly inside my realm of realism. Um, you know, certainly I haven't met any watchers, but you put them in a really good environment that's very realistic with incredibly good Atmos and effects animation, and it just gives an authenticity to the frame that I think um, helps carry a story like this and keep it grounded yeah. as a drama and not in any way comical. Right. Yeah, it's, um, I, think, I think it's intrinsic. I mean, having that underpinning really helps. You know, if you're dealing with something as fantastical as that, you... And that was definitely, you know, that was part of our thinking too, that you want to sort of set a world where something a little fantastical or rather fantastical like that can exist. And then you want to reinforce it by depicting that world as realistic as you can. Mm. And that's that was really probably, certainly from the effects standpoint, our... Uh, our defining, uh, our defining approach on this. Well, Ben, I would love to keep talking with you, but if I did, the next time we speak, you'd be saying we missed our deadline because back in the day I got derailed <laughs> by you. Because <laughs> you've been yeah, very sure. generous with your time, and I really do appreciate it. Um, I, I no think worries. the the work is terrific. I I didn't even get into discussing all of the details of the lighting and stuff, which I'd love to, but um, I think we're kind of out of time. But thank you so much for talking with us, and uh, congratulations on to you and the team. No problem. No, it was a pleasure. Well, thanks to Mike and Ben for that. We do several podcasts, and this week I wanted to highlight one that we call The VFX Show. The podcast you just listened to tends to go technical and talk to the filmmakers directly. The VFX Show is visual effects artists discussing a recent or classic film or even TV series. For example, a recent episode covered the show Vikings and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's not a critique show per se. We do discuss the good and the bad. We always have an eye toward what worked or what didn't work and why. 
And there's a podcast tab on the main site at fxguide.com, and you can find everything we do over there. We're also winding down a term at fxphd.com, but don't worry, another one opens up April 1st. So look for announcements of new courses around that time. Check out fxphd.com and explore a whole world of online, affordable, and unique visual effects training that's designed to take your career to the next level. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.